Uh, last week, we talked about belonging and welcoming, how Christ unconditionally welcomes us into his body, into the church, uh, how he doesn't wait for us to, to be good enough or to earn it, but his grace is extended to all, and so we are welcomed into the capital C church, uh, and we find belonging there with one another, a, a spiritual, gospel-centered family of brothers and sisters in Christ that are all united by the Holy Spirit uh, and by these things that we believe about God, right? But this spiritual, supernatural unity we have in the Spirit, we find belonging there. And so in turn, if we're changed by that grace, if we're transformed, we're made new, we're new creations, then we should extend God's grace to others, right? That's our whole mission at Missio Dei, is to enjoy and extend the grace of God. And so belonging and welcoming is exactly that. We belong, we enjoy the grace of God, and we welcome, we extend the grace of God. So if we've been changed, we should let others know. And we shouldn't put conditions on being invited into the family of God uh, as well, um, because Christ didn't when he welcomed us. And so great blessing and benefit in the family we have when we, when we come together, this unconditional eternal belonging, uh, but also this amazing grace that we extend to others. And this morning we turn to the gathering uh, and I mentioned Friday night the kind of the structure of the series I'm using this book by Tony Merida called Love Your Church, Eight Great Things About Being a Church Member. So that's kind of the, the base uh, structure outline that I'm using for this series. So this morning we turn to the gathering, uh, this, coming together. Uh, for what purpose, right? Uh, why do we come together? We've gathered corporately, which means all together, bodily, uh, in person, the whole church, celebrating the grace of God. But how do we know who decided what, what should the church do when they get together? What gives, gives us a blueprint for that? Um, why, why are we here? Um, what should it entail when we have a, a service or a worship gathering? Uh, and kind of like the message a couple weeks ago when I said the Bible implies church membership, we're going to look at a passage today that is not a how-to have a church service, um, it's actually the kind of the most known for something totally different, which we'll read about, and you'll say, why? Okay, uh, this seems like a misdirection. Um, but what we see in today's passage is going to show us some things that were kind of inherent in the church gathering together. Um, so not, not a prescriptive list of do's and don'ts, again, for how to have a corporate gathering. Um, Paul does have some spe specific instructions later in his writings about um, the Lord's Supper and, and um, prophesying and praying and different things like that uh, when the church is gathered. Um, we're not getting into that. We're looking at the overall why are we here together? Why gather at all? So we're going to be in Acts 20, verses 7 through 12. And again, just to kind of see, oh, why, why were they gathered? And what are they doing when they're together? Uh, and then a lot to unpack from those things. So Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. 
And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This passage is most well known for Eutychus, falling asleep, falling from the third story, dying, and being resurrected, which is an amazing miracle uh, and kind of a cautionary tale, right? If you're sleepy, then maybe you should sit on the ground when you go to church, uh, not in a third-story window. Uh, And I think it's fitting that this text is mostly known for that story, Uh, but that's not our focus Uh, this morning. It's not Eutychus and his miracle, which is amazing, but the setting we see the church uh, experiencing and the purpose that they've gathered together uh, that we see as uh, Luke explains here in these verses. The very first thing we see is that they gathered on the first day of the week. F.F. Bruce notes that this is the earliest text we have, which allows us to infer that believers regularly came together on that day for worship. 1 Corinthians makes a reference to the first day of the week as well. And other passages refer to the Lord's Day, which was marked by the day Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we see this pattern in the New Testament of people kind of commemorating the resurrection, celebrating almost like every week is, uh, is Easter, right? Almost every week is celebrating the resurrection. And so they would gather on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, to do these things. This is where the tradition of meeting on Sunday came from, kind of a weekly celebration again. Um, that's just, a, just an FYI. They were meeting weekly, regularly, most likely, on the first day of the week. That's just kind of a bonus fact for this morning. It's not one of the three points. Uh, but the three major aspects of the worship gathering that we see believers coming together as a family to experience uh, are also from this passage. The first is we gather to listen in. We gather to listen in. In verses 7 and 9, we see that Paul talked with the people and talked for a long time. I've referenced Acts 2 several times in this series as well. Today, no different, because Acts 2, 42 through 47, gives us a great list of what the early church was devoted to, what they were gathering together to do. And one of the things that they were devoted to is the apostles' teaching. One of the most important things we gather together to do is to hear from God's Word, to hear teaching on who God is, who we are, what God has done, what he can do, how to live for him and bring him glory, how the gospel responds to the brokenness of the world. And this is a biblical principle we see throughout Scripture, having God's word read or taught or explained, preached to us. Way back in the Old Testament, it was the priests who taught the law to the people. We have this great example of Ezra standing, not just to read Scripture, but it says that he gave a sense of the scripture to the people. So he's explaining it, kind of breaking it down so they can understand what the scriptures mean. And then the prophets, of course, throughout the Old Testament were to convey the words of the Lord, right? Not their own opinions, not their own messages, but what God had given them to give to others. Fast forward to the New Testament, and we see the early church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. We see deacons being installed in Acts 6 so that the elders can commit themselves to the ministry of the word. We see Paul charging Timothy to preach the word and also writing that many are gifted as teachers, right? That the Spirit has given many the gift of teaching. And so in Christianity, we are to teach the word to others. So we continue this practice today. We sit under preaching or teaching of God's word when we come together. 
when we listen in, we're opening not just our ears, but our hearts, our minds to be ministered to by the Lord. Peter would write in 1 Peter 4 that whoever speaks or teaches should speak as one who speaks oracles of God. This is one reason that James 3.1 says Bible teachers will be held to a higher standard. For preachers and teachers, the work should be taken seriously because it carries much weight. The words of God carry authority. And so if you're going to stand in a place and kind of convey, thus saith the Lord, you have to be really careful that it's not what I want to say and sticking a sticker on it that says, thus saith the Lord. What has God given us to examine? The implication here for the hearer is that we should revere preaching with due respect. Preaching should stand on the authority of God's word and, again, not simply be informational, but it should put our focus on Jesus. It should be kind of a magnifying glass on Jesus, on God, on his character, on his instruction. The outcome should be worship, God's glory, not just education and information transfer. We should be stirring our affections for God and making our view of him bigger. If God's word is for exhortation, then preaching should leave us feeling exhorted. Exhorted means encouraged to do something. We should be convicted of change, a belief, a way of life should be different because of God's word being imparted to us. It's not for sitting and soaking, as the phrase goes. We're not to be merely hearer, hearers of God's word, but doers. So when we gather to hear the word of God, it's so that our lives are changed, that we might think and act differently, more like Jesus. And again, we should be moved by the spirit and the word of God, not by the charisma of the speaker. Um, Paul would say this a couple of times, that he said, I'm not trying to convince you with eloquence of speech and just fancy words, but the conviction should come from the Holy Spirit in your heart based on the truth of God's word. That's not to say that preaching should just be kind of delivered like this, thus saith the Lord, Jesus has saved my life, I'm so thankful, praise God. That's not convincing, right? Do I sound like someone whose life has been transformed? Do I sound like someone whose sins have been forgiven, who's been given eternal life? No. And so there should be a measure of energy in preaching because we are people who have been changed We're preaching the power of God's word, the power of God to work in your life, not to put a spotlight on us, again, who speak the words of God or who preach the word of God, but to say, I've been changed, and so I have been moved. I'm excited about who God is and what he's done, and I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Praying again that it's the Holy Spirit who convinces you, not my phrasing or wording. Tony Merida, who wrote the book, Love Your Church, he offers the following ways to sit well under the teaching of God's word. And I can give you this list later if you want it. Don't have time to write it down. Number one, listen humbly. We sit under teaching so that God's word might confront us, instruct us, and change us. So we listen humbly. Number two, we listen intently. We need to fight the urge to check out. We don't want to fall asleep like Eutychus. Some people may choose to interact with amens or head nods, take notes. These are ways to maybe stay engaged. Number three, listen biblically. Think and measure the messages against the pure word of God. We've talked about this before. It's not just a matter of anything that comes out of my mouth is gospel fact. If something I say contradicts the word of God, you measure it against the word of God and say, that's not right. So we listen biblically. 
What else in Scripture reminds us of what we're hearing? Those kinds of things. Four, we listen personally. Listen for yourself, not just this is a message they need to hear. I'm glad they came today so they could hear this word from the Lord. But what does God want to teach me? But we do also, number five, listen communally. We listen for ourselves, but we also listen for the good of others, how we might encourage one another with what we're hearing. Number six, we listen obediently. Again, don't just hear, but obey. Number seven, we listen practically. Listen for specific ways to apply the message. If this is true, if this is God's word, then what should change about my life? What should be different? And then finally, number eight, listen gratefully. Be thankful that God speaks to his people, that he has revealed this great word to us to align our lives with and surrender to him. Some great tips to keep in mind, to be proactive in our listening on Sunday mornings. Uh, But listening in is not the only reason we gather. We also gather to let God know. We gather to let God know. Now remember, God is all-powerful and all-knowing, so I don't mean that we're informing God of something that he's not aware of. But we do speak and sing to him when we gather together. We're letting him hear our praises, letting him hear our concerns, letting him hear the heart's cry of what's inside of us. It may be hurts, it may be rejoicing, but we're letting him know. We're letting him hear it. There are a ton of references to the gathered saints singing to God in Scripture. The entire book of Psalms is filled with hymns to be sung to the Lord. Jesus and his disciples sung a hymn after instituting the Lord's Supper. Revelation gives us this picture of kind of this eternal worship service where the multitudes are singing praises to God. Again, just as hearts changed by grace extend welcome, hearts changed by grace express praise. The Bible says to make a joyful noise to the Lord. You don't have to be great. You don't even have to be good. Just be joyful. If you're real bad, we might, you know, turn up the voice of the microphone people or something, but we just want to make sure that people are being obedient and open and honest. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5.19. He says, we're addressing one another, we should address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then he would write this in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hear the emphasis here, it's, it's on our hearts, the condition of our hearts, making melody with our hearts, singing with thankfulness in our hearts, no instructions on volume or skill level, the bass is standing over here and the alto's here, and the, right? No instruction on volume or skill, but affection and gratitude, sing with affection in your heart, sing with gratitude in your heart. Reminds me of Psalm 51, 17, which says the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. He wants our hearts above all else. Much more concerned with our hearts than our voices. Just like God valued Abel's heart obedience over Cain's vain offering back in Genesis. Singing is a way to express the surrender and gratefulness of our hearts to God, to magnify the name of the Lord, to proclaim his majesty and glory, to celebrate his goodness and grace in our lives. It can actually make us feel good physically, too. Singing triggers dopamine release in our bodies. It actually makes you feel better to sing. 
It's an activity when directed toward God that incorporates then our body and our soul, right? It's kind of full body, mind, heart, soul experience to sing to the Lord. Now, if it's not, again, worship in in spirit and truth, you can get some of those other boxes checked, right? Singing anything releases dopamine if it's just kind of a happy song. And so we need to be careful. When Andrew picks songs for Sunday morning, right, he's not just picking something that could be a vague love song to whoever that you could hear on the radio. We want to make sure that it speaks the name of Jesus, that it's clear that we're singing about God, not just a crush or something. Because we could just get a dopamine release, but we're not here to just get a dopamine release. We're here to be transformed spiritually, not just physically. And so when you combine those things and say, I'm, I'm releasing dopamine because I'm singing, that's how God has wired my body, but I'm singing to God, you're, you're combining those things to say the joy of the Lord actually makes me feel good physically as my mind is changed and tuned towards him and focused on him. And when we gather together, it's done together, right? Those passages in Ephesians, Colossians, they mention that it's not just letting God know, but letting one another know, letting our brothers and sisters know. We're addressing one another, admonishing one another, singing corporately is a way to let God know, but also to let our family know. The other way we let God know is through prayer. Prayer, of course, is vital to the life of the believer, individually, often privately, but also in the life of the church. When God's people gather, we're to pray. We pray to God to praise him confess, to thank him, to present requests to him for ourselves and for others. Prayer is uh, it's on the list of things the early church devoted themselves to in that Acts 2 passage, Acts 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to, ding, 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 one of them is prayer. And then again, remember the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus gave us when he taught his disciples how to pray. It was given with this corporate or first-person plural pronouns. He says, pray like this, our Father, give us our daily bread. Forgive us, lead us. There's a togetherness, a unifying sense in the prayer. As Jesus is pointing his disciples to say, yes, pray, but remember, not just you who's been forgiven, not just you who needs to be led, not just you who needs to, to thank God for daily bread. But you're in this together as a church family, as a spiritual body. There are instructions, of course, in Scripture to pray alone in private, right? Not to be showy with prayer, but also we're to pray when gathered together. Again, uh, Meritor writes, Our prayers show our dependency on God. Our prayers glorify God, who is the source of all our blessings. One of the great joys of meeting together is praying together. We pray for ourselves, our fellow church members, unbelievers, family, and friends, lifting up physical and spiritual needs that God might do a work in their lives, but we also pray for the nations. We're to intercede for people around the world. We pray for people who don't speak our language or look like us or dress like us or vote like us. We pray for world leaders. We pray for our enemies and our nation's enemies. Our God is over the whole planet. His church exists across the whole planet. We want his name to be great in all the earth. So we pray for him to work in every corner of it, healing, restoring, protecting, saving, transforming. If our church's prayers are limited to our zip code or our contact list, we have short-sighted view of our God and our purpose as a church. 
We pray when we gather. We sing when we gather because we, let, we gather to let God know. We listen in, we let God know, and finally, we gather to live it out. We gather to live it out. What I mean when I say we gather to live it out is that we do things together to express our oneness with God and with each other. We are united with Christ miraculously and one another. And God has given us a couple of ways to express that when we gather together through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Jesus actually ordered his followers to do these things, which is why we call them ordinances. A fancy word just means that Jesus told us to do these things. Some might refer to them as sacraments. I tend to avoid this term because I don't want to get it confused with the Roman Catholic view of these things that they convey saving grace. We don't believe that they convey saving grace. And I know the Nicene Creed that we've been reciting says we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. This phrasing occurs in the Bible where Peter says in Acts 2.38 to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But we believe the Bible teaches salvation by grace through faith, not of works. So when I recite that line of the creed, I recite it with the interpretation that one baptism represents all that was done for our sins to be forgiven, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They were enough for my forgiveness. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. This is a reference to our salvation, not our physical water baptism. Being united to Christ by the Spirit. This is the baptism that I am referring to when I say that part of the creed. That's just an FYI and a clarification. Baptism in water does not forgive our sins. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are not saving works. They are not required for salvation. But we believe they are to be preceded by salvation. Let's look at baptism first. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. It's a symbol of our spiritual death and new life as we identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This picture is illustrated through immersion, being dunked, the whole body. We baptize by immersion, meaning the entire body goes under the water to express the idea of burial. It's picturing the going under. The whole body dies and is buried, but is brought back up out of the water just as Christ was resurrected, just as we have been raised to new life as well in Christ. There's a wholeness, a completeness to our salvation. We are fully redeemed. We're fully forgiven in Christ. We are new creations who've been raised to new life in Jesus. So the full immersion helps to symbolize that. This form of baptism, believer's baptism, is referred to as credo-baptism as opposed to paedo-baptism, which is the baptizing of infants or children of believing parents as a sign of covenant. But it's not a picture of a saving faith already realized in the person being baptized. Here at Missio Dei Church, we do not practice paedo-baptism. We only baptize those who have trusted Jesus by faith as a testimony that they now belong to him. I've often explained baptism to others like a wedding ring. This ring does not make me married. My vows make me married, right? My commitment, the promises that I've made. Legally, my marriage license makes me married. What the ring does is it tells everybody that I belong to somebody. It's the same thing with baptism. Baptism doesn't make you saved. It doesn't save you. But having already been saved, when you go public with your faith to be baptized, what you're saying is, I belong to somebody. I belong to Jesus. And so they see 
this testimony, this public profession. That's why it's when we're gathered, it's, it, it's witnessed by a body to say we, we're welcoming this fellow brother or sister into the family of God. We're praising God for their testimony that they, they too have found new spiritual life in Christ. So that's what baptism does. Not necessary for salvation, but it follows salvation as a witness, as a testimony. It's also an act of obedience. Jesus was baptized. He didn't trust in himself for salvation, right? He said when he was baptized, it was to fulfill all obedience, to fulfill the law, because he was going to live a perfectly righteous life, right? And so if baptism is something that is expected of the people who follow God and have surrendered to God, he's baptized. And so when we are baptized, we are following Jesus in obedience as well. It's an act of obedience and faith and testimony. It's one way we live it out. If you've trusted Jesus by faith for salvation but never been baptized, let's talk. Let's talk about it. If you think you're ready to be baptized, let's talk about it. But we want to make sure that you understand baptism follows salvation, follows surrender. It's not a way to just turn over a new leaf or kind of start fresh. Not what baptism is. It's a picture of a spiritual reality that already exists in your heart and in your life. And in Baptist churches, baptism is required for membership. The idea, remember, is that church members are all believers. And so if baptism is an act of obedience, and we recognize that, then to say, I'm a believer, but I've never been baptized, is to say, I'm a believer who's not in full obedience. And so it's kind of an active disobedience. And so a Baptist church will not welcome you into membership if you say, I'm not going to be baptized, and I've not been baptized. So you need to be baptized, because that's an act of obedience to our Father. If you've been born again, that's something that should happen. The other ordinance that Jesus gave the church is the Lord's Supper. Again, we don't believe that the Lord's Supper conveys any saving grace to us. We also don't believe, like some other faiths, that the bread and juice are literally the body and blood of Jesus. We believe Jesus was just speaking in metaphor, like when he called himself uh, a shepherd or a door, right? It's not literally a door. So when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was pointing us to the symbols of his body and blood. They're very rich symbols, uh, bread or crackers without leaven, just like the Passover meal, to represent the sinlessness of Jesus. Leaven is, symbolizes sin in Scripture. The juice or the wine is made from crushed or pressed grapes, just as Jesus' body was crushed and he bled. The early church took the Lord's Supper regularly, and so that's why you'll often find different churches have different frequency of doing the Lord's Supper. The Acts 2 passage that we keep referring to says that they devoted themselves to many things, one of which was the breaking of bread, a term which is often used to refer to communion. Our opening passage in Acts 20 said they gathered on the first day of the week to break bread. Now, the early church most likely was combining a full meal with the Lord's Supper. Um, sadly, we don't do that every time, um, but we value meals together, right? We have that as part of our rhythms as a church. Um, we've talked about that. We spent a whole series on meals with Jesus. But the ordinance is the Lord's Supper, the elements of the bread and the juice. What happens when we take communion besides symbolizing Jesus' body and blood? Well, when we observe the Lord's Supper, as I say almost every time we take it, we're proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes again. Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians. We're also identifying again with Christ and with one another. There's a unifying aspect when we do these things together. Because when we come to the table, 
the Lord's Supper. It's this symbol of we, we come to Christ, right? The same level ground, the same level playing field. Whatever amount of sin and holier, righteous, whatever that we've accomplished for ourselves, it doesn't matter. We all come to saving faith by the same blood of Jesus. We're all welcomed at the table. We will spend eternity at the banqueting table together, one family. And so there's a unifying act when we take the elements together. We come to the, the table together. I think I mentioned before that one of the products of the Protestant Reformation was to say you no longer need an intermediary to, to give you the elements, to say I need someone to get me to Jesus. But we come to the table ourselves and take the elements for ourselves because we have direct access to Jesus. It's a symbolism there. It's a family meal where we reflect, proclaim, and are united together. Therefore, the Lord's Supper also is reserved for believers who are brothers and sisters to one another, reflecting on the work that they have already trusted in, proclaiming the Jesus that they've already surrendered to. So we gather for all these reasons, to listen in, to let God know, to live it out. Sadly, Sunday gatherings have become much more than this in a lot of places. It's tempting to get distracted or focused on the wrong things. And then put all kinds of effort and resources into the things that worship gatherings were never meant to be. But they are vitally important to the body of Christ. And along those lines, this is just some parting practical uh, tips or outlook to give us. This is from Gavin Ortland. He wrote this article uh, for Desiring God. Some suggestions for believers to make Sundays sweet. To make Sundays sweet. And again, if you want this list, let me know. First, he says, recognize that you need your church and your church needs you. So make it a priority to be here, uh, to be on time, to just respect the gathering. Um, as we mentioned in our group Friday night, that often drifting from God's people is a, just a pathway to drifting from God. Second, sanctify Saturday nights. Prepare for Sundays by making good decisions on Saturday night as best as you can. Prepare your mind and body, whether that's getting enough rest, right? Looking forward to the next day with expectation, praying for your pastor and fellow church members, potential visitors. So we sanctify Saturday nights. Third, prepare for drama at home on Sunday morning. Uh, the enemy wants to disrupt your worship, and so don't be surprised when everything goes wrong on Sunday mornings. Your bed may seem extra cozy. The alarm may not go off. The car won't start. The kids will be maniacs. Anticipate the chaos and determine ahead of time to respond with grace and press on in faith. But prepare for that drama. And then fourth, he recommends having some special traditions on the day of worship. A special meal each Sunday or protected nap time or another just family day of rest, togetherness. Maybe having another family over, or maybe not having anyone over, right? Whatever that is, just to kind of say, this is our tradition. This is a way to kind of build fondness around the Lord's day. Regular ways to build these things. Habits of not just gathering worship for worship on Sunday mornings, but that the day is a special day. How can we do that together uh, or as families? I often say that God has given us each other for each other. He's given us such a sweet gift in gathering for worship. So let's continue to honor, to glorify as we minister to each other week in and week out, listening in, letting God know, and living it out. Let's pray. God, I do thank you. I thank you for this spiritual family, this church uh, that, you, that you have gathered 
that you have brought together. I thank you for the gift of, of coming together and how, how it was sorely missed when, when churches couldn't or wouldn't meet during pandemic or lockdown just to, um, out of wisdom, out of, out of caution. But God, it, it showed for a lot of, it showed a lot of us how valuable it is to come together with brothers and sisters in Jesus. I pray that we would never take it for granted, that we would always value it, that we would put, uh, put our all into it. We would, we would try to make Sundays as great as we can because we value the Lord's day. We value our spiritual family. We value uh, listening to you and sitting under the teaching of your word. We, we value singing to you and praying to you and praying for one another. And we, we value coming together to live it out through obedience, through testimony, through reflection, through the ordinances that you've given us. Thank you for our gathering, Lord. We pray for those who are gathering all over the world today, various times, different places. But in spirit and truth, we pray that you are honored and glorified, that worship is increasing as your church gathers. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.